What do you think is the saddest sentence? What's the saddest sentence that you can come up with? Is it, he's not coming back? It's a sad sentence. What about, you're not welcome here? Very sad, yes. If you have ever had a newborn, if you've been a parent of a newborn, here's a sad sentence for you that you don't want to hear in the middle of the night. It's your turn. That sentence brings tears to my eyes. It's your turn. How about this? The masters will probably be over when you get home from church. That's probably not going to be true, but to some of you, that's a very sad sentence. Here's a really sad sentence. Alabama wins another national championship. Hmm. Man, that is a profoundly sad sentence. How about this one? Appropriate for this time of of year. You owe the IRS. Nobody wants to hear of that. Tax days tomorrow. How about, I found the love of my life, but she didn't. Hmm. What? I question the people who just laughed at that. We've got some really mean-spirited, cruel people in the house. Who was it that just laughed at that? I found, that's a sad sentence. I found the love of my life, but she didn't. Ha, 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 ha. Uh, <laughs> who are you people? Of all, how about this one? You've probably heard this. Of all the words of tongue or pen, the saddest are these. It might have been. An, a sad sentence, indeed. I think you can make the case for the saddest sentence in Judges chapter 2, verse 10. And we've been a little lighthearted so far with some of these, at least, but I'm not kidding about this one. Judges chapter 2, verse 10, I think that the second part of that verse, you could make a compelling case that this is the saddest sentence ever written. What we read there in the book of Judges chapter 2, verse 10 is this, And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, and they did not know the work that He had done for Israel. That is an extremely sad sentence. Especially when you consider that it's preceded by chapter 2, verse 7. These are the two verses that we heard read for us earlier, our texts for the day. Chapter 2, verse 7 says this, The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. So that generation served the Lord and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. So those who lived beyond the days of Joshua for a little while who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And then you get to verse 10, and we read, But that generation all passed away, and those who came after did not know the Lord, and they did not know the work that He had done for Israel. We just finished the book of Judges this past week. If you're keeping up with your reading, you just wrapped up Judges yesterday. And I think you'll agree with me that chapter 2, verse 10, sets the tone for this book. It sets the tone, it previews the downward spiral that we see in the book of Judges into immorality and rebellion. When we see here that a generation came after the generation of Joshua, and Joshua is kind of a high watermark for the people of Israel. In Joshua, everybody seems, with a few exceptions, seems devoted to following closely after the Lord. They are united, they are following uh, 
God's instructions to go into the land and to take it, and then things spiral downward in the book of Judges. And it really starts right here in verse 10. When we see that the generation who came after the generation of Joshua, they didn't know the Lord, and they didn't know the work that He had done for Israel. And this book, the book of Judges, shows what happens when people don't know the Lord. They do, according to chapter 2, verse 11, the very next verse, they do evil in His sight. The Scripture says the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. They served false gods. We see that here in chapter 2, verse 11. In chapter 3, verses 7 and 12. In chapter 4, verse 1. In chapter 6, verse 1. 10, 6. 13, 1. You see this verse over and over. They did what was evil. They did what was evil. And they did what was evil because they did not know the Lord. And they did not know about His mighty acts on behalf of the people of Israel. And what I want to know is, why didn't they know? Why did they not know the Lord? And all the wonderful things that He had done. Weren't they told by their parents? They were supposed to inherit the faith of their fathers as we just Saying, why didn't they know? Were they not told? It was God's design that they be told. If you go back to Joshua chapter 4, right after the people cross over the Jordan River, when God uh, parts the waters and they form a heap downstream and upstream, and the people come across the Jordan into the promised land on dry land, and they collect 12 stones from the riverbank, and they set up those 12 stones in a monument in the city of Gilgal. And Joshua says, if any of your children ask what these stones mean, you tell them that God miraculously parted the waters of the Jordan so that we could come into the land promised to our ancestors. You tell them the story about what happened. You tell them what those stones represent. Did they not tell them about that? And then going even further back in the history of Israel, all the way back to the book of Exodus, when the people are still in Egyptian bondage, and they celebrate the first Passover, which is a feast that God says, when you get into the land, you need to continually celebrate it. It it celebrated how God passed over, how God spared the lives of the Israelites when He struck down the Egyptians. It commemorated the time when the Israelites painted blood on their doorposts and God passed by their houses as He struck down the Egyptians. And in Exodus chapter 12, verses 26 and 27, Moses says, when your kids ask you why you take part in this Passover feast, tell them the story. Tell them why. Tell them what happened. Tell them the event that that this feast originated with. Tell them about it. Were they not told? Did their parents not tell them about the Passover? And then more broadly, in the book of Deuteronomy, a very famous passage, chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, after we are told that the greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, Moses says, 
place all of the commands of God on your heart and when your children ask about them, or or rather, as you go throughout your daily life with your kids, when you're sitting at home, when you're walking along the way, when you get up in the morning, when you lay down at night, be talking about the commands of the Lord. Be talking about the law. From sun up to sun down, have the law of the Lord on your lips. Did they not do that? Weren't they told... Why didn't they know the Lord? Maybe they were told. I like to think that they were told. And that they just didn't listen. They just didn't obey. Maybe that's the case. But regardless, what I want to share with you this morning, and really the big point of the sermon, it's a very simple point, but sometimes it's the simple stuff that we need to be reminded of over and over again. Here it is. Regardless of, of the situation in Israel, here, here are facts. If we don't tell, if we don't tell the next generation, if we don't tell our children about our Lord, our Father, and all that He's done for us, then they won't know either. They won't. They will be in the same boat that this generation was in in Judges. The generation that rose up and didn't know the Lord and didn't know what He had done for their ancestors and therefore they did what was evil and things spiraled out of control into greater, deeper levels of sin and iniquity. Our kids will be in the same place that they were in if we don't tell them. If we don't tell them, then they won't know. If we are faithful in every way, In every way. If we come to church every time the doors are open. If we're kind to everyone that we meet. If we do everything that the New Testament instructs us to do except tell the next generation about our Lord, we are dropping the ball big time. We are missing a golden opportunity. And research shows that we are not telling like we should be. Researchers for the National Study of Youth and Religion, which was the largest study ever on young people and faith, found that the vast majority of U.S. teenagers are incredibly inarticulate. Incredibly inarticulate about their faith. They don't know how to talk about their faith, about what they believe. And these researchers hypothesized that the youth that they interviewed were inarticulate in matters of faith because guess what? No one had taught them how to talk about their faith. And no one had provided opportunities to practice using a faith vocabulary. In other words, they weren't told. Findings of the Search Institute back up this theory. According to their study of 11,000 teenagers who go to church, these are 11,000 church-going teenagers, they say only 12% of these have a regular dialogue with their mom on faith issues, life issues, around just one in eight young people who go to church report having regular conversations with their mom about their faith. Only 5% talk about faith with their dad. Dads, talking to myself, this should be a wake-up call. According to this study, Only 1 in 20 young people who go to church talk regularly with their fathers about their faith. Dads, we've got to step it up. We've got to do better. And just 9% of church-going teenagers engage in regular reading of the Bible and devotions. 
with their families. Less than 10%. So we're not telling like we should if we believe these numbers. And on top of this, a lot of us are uncomfortable talking about our faith, aren't we? It hasn't been a part of our tradition to speak openly and personally about our faith and our love for God and to weave language about God and faith into everyday conversation. In fact, if we're honest with ourselves, people who gush constantly about their faith make us uncomfortable. And people like that to us, to many of us, seem less than genuine. And when you start throwing out words like testimony or witness, ooh, you know, we kind of bristle a bit. That's not our thing. We're not comfortable with that sort of thing. When those words simply mean talking about what Jesus has done for you, talking about what the Lord means to you, how God has changed your life, but we're uncomfortable with that sort of thing. Or at least we have been, historically. And you may say, well listen, living out your faith, showing your faith in your actions, that's way more important than talking about your faith. And I wouldn't disagree with that. In fact, if faced with the decision between living out our faith and talking about our faith, we should choose living out our faith every time. And setting the example with our faithful actions. But here's the thing. We don't have to choose. And we shouldn't choose. While actions might speak louder than words, words really matter. Words make a difference. And we shouldn't leave the telling to somebody else. And I'm speaking here to parents. We cannot, if we want to raise faithful children, if we want to raise children who love the Lord and are devoted to Him all their days, we cannot outsource the telling. We cannot treat preachers and youth ministers and Bible class teachers like we treat band directors and soccer coaches and strength training coaches. We cannot treat figures in the church like they're just another coach for our kids. And we rely on all these people to train them in athletics and extracurricular activities and we bring them to church every so often so they can get spiritual training as well. That is not how it's supposed to work and that will not work. Because what our young people receive at home is what is most vital, most important, most formative. Do not outsource the telling to someone else. Now that's not to say that the work that ministers and elders and Bible class teachers and other trusted individuals in in the church, not to say that's not important, but what you as a parent do at home is of the utmost importance. And so I want you to imagine that we planted a microphone in your home for a week. Ooh, did your palms start to sweat a little bit? Imagine that. And then we took that recording and we sort of edited it down. And on a Sunday morning, I played the highlights. What would we hear from your home in a week's worth of conversation? Would we hear just logistics? Hey, I'll take the kids to soccer practice if you'll you know, take them over here to school? Just that sort of speech? Would we just hear trivial conversations, you know, about little things? Would we hear gossip? Would we hear nothing? Are you speaking at all? Or worse, 
Would we hear angry language? Would we hear a lot of crude words? Would we hear condescension? What percent of your conversations would explicitly mention God, would you say, in the course of a week? Or have a clear connection to your faith? If we want the next generation to know and serve the Lord, we must tell them about Him and His works. And our actions are very important. We cannot say one thing and do another. That is certainly not what I am am preaching this morning. Our actions have to back up our, our words, but our words are a really important piece of the puzzle, an extremely vital component. It's important for us to become more comfortable about talking about our God who saves us through His Son, Jesus Christ, and our faith that sustains us through this life. If, we, if it really is important to us, if it really matters to us, if it really has made a difference, wouldn't we be talking about it more? I mean, we talk about the things that are important to us, right? Those are the things that we wind up talking about over and over again. What does it say about our faith if we hardly ever talk about it? If that kind of language is never found in our everyday conversations. If we don't tell, they won't know. And I focused a good bit on what happens in the home and parents, and rightfully so. But let me just say, this sermon is not just to parents. It is to grandparents. It is to aunts and uncles. It is to all believers because it is the responsibility of every Christian, of all of us, to be telling the next generation about the Lord. And if the only conversations that we hear in the church lobby on the way out of worship are about the weather and sports, then we are missing it. We are missing the point. Titus chapter 2, Paul talks about how it is the responsibility of the older men to train the younger men in the faith. And he also talks here about how it is the responsibility of the older women to train the younger women in the faith. It is the responsibility of all of us to bring up the next generation to know the Lord and to know His works so that they do good in His sight and not evil. During the Lord's Supper, When one of those little ones on your pew asks you what it means to partake of the bread and the cup, listen, I know often in the Lord's Supper we focus on being solemn and we have a time of silent reflection on the cross. But I can't think of a better way to spend this memorial feast than if a little one beside you And if you're sitting near little ones, they will ask. There will come a time when they will ask, what does that mean? And I can't think of a better way to spend that memorial feast than explain to them what it means for you as a believer to take of these emblems. You see, when we eat that bread, it commemorates, we're supposed to think about the body of Jesus Christ that was hung up cruelly on that cross. When when we take of that bread, we're supposed to think back and reflect on that body that was broken for us. And when we take that cup of grape juice, that juice is to remind us of His blood. The blood that flowed down from His head where they 
shoved the crown of thorns upon his brow. The blood that flowed out of his hands and his feet and his side when they shoved the spear into it. That's the blood that brings us salvation. And when we contact that blood in the waters of baptism, we are saved and we receive eternal life. And when we take that cup, we're supposed to think about that blood. The blood of Christ. That is the only means of our salvation. When your children ask you about that, as they asked about the stones that they built up when they crossed over the Jordan, as they asked about the Passover feast, when they ask you about this, don't miss an opportunity to tell them. Tell them about it. We don't just tell them in the assembly, of course, either. But when we sit at home, when we drive along the road, when we lie down at night, and when we rise up in the morning, according to Deuteronomy chapter 6. And that pretty well encompasses the entirety of life. Throughout every waking moment of your day, may God and His blessings that He showered upon you be on your lips. Be talking about your faith with the next generation. Be telling them over and over again. We tell the next generation about the Lord and His works. We tell them about it and tell them about it until that story becomes their story. I once heard the story of a family on a tour of the Holy Lands. And their tour guide was an Israeli man named Jonah. And while they were traveling from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, Jonah said, can I take you another way? And the family said, sure, you know, you're the guide. And so they took the old Volkswagen that they were driving down another road. They pulled off to the side and Jonah said, I want to show you something. Everybody get out. I want you to look over here. Do you see that hill? Do you see those trees? There's a road at the base of the hill. You can't see it, but there's a road there. And they thought we were going to come around that road and they got up in the trees and they were going to ambush us. We heard about it. We came around the other way over the top of the hill and we killed every one of them. And the family, they looked at each other and they thought, wow, you know, our tour guide has seen battle action. And the father of the family said, Jonah, was that in the war of 1948 or 67? And he said, that was the Maccabean War in the 160s B.C. And the father said, well, you tell that story like you were there. And with level gaze, he said, I was. If we don't tell them the story, our story, their story, they can't enter it. They can't be enrolled in it. Because we're not just talking about things that happened way back when. We're talking about things that are happening to us. It's not just their story. It's our story. When Jesus hung on the cross, though that event and history occurred hundreds of years ago, it was because of us that they placed Him on that cross. It was my sins that held Him there. And even though Jesus rose up from the grave gloriously on the third day after He was killed hundreds of years ago, He is still alive today. And He gives me hope of, of new life in, in this old world and forevermore. 
And even though the church was established hundreds, uh, hundreds of years ago on the day of Pentecost, we can be part of that church today. That is our church that was established, the church that God graciously allows us to be a part of. And the Spirit that came upon the disciples that day, that Spirit still lives within us. These are not events that just happened to them. These are events that are part of our story. And if our children grow up and they don't know the Lord, may it not be because we neglected to tell them. May it not be because we never told. And maybe you say, but I don't know enough. I don't know enough to tell. Well, what did the formerly demon-possessed man in Mark chapter 5 know? All he knew was that a man named Jesus with great power swept through his village and he was possessed by hundreds of demons one day and the next he was clothed and seated and in his right mind and healed. And he said, Jesus, I want to go with you. And Jesus says, I don't want you to go with me because I have an even more special mission for you. I want you to go tell your friends and your neighbors how much the Lord has done for you. And all he knew was that Jesus had saved him. If Jesus has saved you from your sins, then you know enough to start talking about Jesus with the next generation. Well, maybe you say, I'm, I'm just not good with my words. I'm not eloquent enough to be talking to the next generation about their God and about what He's done in history. You know who you sound like? You sound like Moses, who in Exodus chapter 4, verse 10 said, I'm not good with my words, Lord. Pick someone else. And God used that ineloquent man to deliver a mighty nation out of Egyptian bondage. It's not how well you tell. It's that you tell. And the next generation will see the genuineness of your faith through the meagerness of your words. Don't worry about how your words come out. Don't worry if they're jumbled and mixed up the next generation will be able to see whether or not they mean something to you. They will not judge them by their eloquence, but by their genuineness. Eugene Peterson passed away a couple months ago. He was a Christian author, most known for writing the paraphrase of the Bible we call the message. And at his funeral, his son Leif said that his dad only had one sermon. Just one sermon that he had everyone fooled for 29 years of church ministry. That for all his books, he just had one message. And it was a secret, Leif said, that his dad had, had let him in on early in life. It was a message that Leif said his dad had whispered in his heart for 50 years. Words that he had snuck into his room to say over him as he slept as a child. And the words are, God loves you. God is on your side. He is coming after you. He is relentless. We keep telling and telling and telling our children that until they know it, until they believe it, until they can enter the story, until they obey it. We tell them over and over and over again. So that they grow up and they know the Lord. 
And they know what He's done for them. And they do good in His sight. And not evil. And they get to spend forever in His presence. If you want to spend forever in the Lord's presence and you haven't put Jesus on in baptism, we invite you to do that this morning. If you need prayers for any other reason, this is also a time that you can come. Why don't you do that as we stand and sing?